All right, we're in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, a couple of prefatory, prefatory statements here. Uh, in Matthew 17, the second half that we'll be looking at, uh, we see a boy who's demonized. And whenever we talk about demons or somebody who has a demon, um, a lot of questions can come up. And I'm not going to be answering those questions today because that's not primarily what this passage of Scripture is about. But I did want to direct your attention to a really good resource. If you have questions or just want to learn more about uh, spiritual warfare, how we deal with demons, what our place is as Christians with demons. So we're going to put this up on the board, uh, the screen here. Take a picture. If you go to realityventura.com, then click on sermons, then click on topics and spiritual warfare. There's a really great uh, like conversation that Britt did actually at Reality Ventura several years ago. He's just sitting on the stage for like over an hour talking about spiritual warfare and the devil and demons and all that stuff. So a dialogue on the devil, demons, and spiritual warfare part two is what you want to grab. That will answer a lot of your questions. So go ahead and take a picture of that if you want to write that down. Uh, Matthew 17, <clears throat> picking up where we left off last week in verse 14. And when they... That is Jesus and the three disciples. We'll get to that in a minute. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The title of this sermon is Mountain Movers, Faithless Fretters, and a Steadfast Savior. Uh, could somebody grab me some water? It disappeared. Baby, do you have a water you could bring me? Let's pray together. And then water will magically appear while we're praying. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your great faithfulness. Thank you that you are indeed a steadfast Savior, as we will see here in Scripture. Lord, thank you for your word that is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And thank you, Jesus, for your words that were spoken here. We ask that they would bring us life today. You alone have the words of eternal life. We ask that your word and your words would bring us eternal life. We ask that you would speak to us everything that you want to say and that our ears would be open to hear from you. I submit myself and my thoughts and my mind to you, my mouth to you, Lord. ask that you would communicate to us all that you would have for us this morning. We love you. Bless your name. Amen. Water appeared with my wife's lipstick on it. It's cute. If you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, you will find a painting by the artist El Greco. It's called The Vision of St. John, and it depicts uh, Revelation chapter 6, where the martyrs are receiving their robes from heaven. And there in the painting, you'll also see the Apostle John as he's reaching up to heaven. But the painting in the Met in New York is just a fragment. 
It's just a fragment of the original painting. See, in the 1800s during the Enlightenment, when society was trying to cut God out of everything, they decided that they would improve upon this painting by cutting off, it's a really big painting, by cutting off nearly the top five feet of this painting where all the like God stuff was happening. They wanted to retain the history and the art, but forget about God. And so now when you look at this painting, you see John and he's reaching up to heaven, but to who? And you see the, the, the martyrs and they're receiving white robes, but from whom? And I think this painting is, uh, it's like a picture of society, right? We have tried to remove God from the picture, but we're still looking upward. We're still longing for something bigger than ourselves. We're still praying. It's not that we don't have gods. We have just tried to cut out the God, big G, and replaced him with other functional gods, little g, in our life. It's not that we don't have faith. We all have faith in something. But the question is, in whom or in what do we have our faith? See, in a secular world, faith doesn't disappear. It just reappears in other forms. The question isn't, do we have faith? The question is, what is the object of our faith? Because as we'll see today in this passage of Scripture, that makes all the difference in the world. And here today in this passage, we'll not only see what faith is, but we will also see who is worthy of our faith. We will, say, we will see these faithless, fretting people. We will see a faithful, steadfast Savior. And we will see a faith that can move mountains. So let's just recap the beginning of this story here. We saw uh, from last week in the beginning of Matthew 17 with Billy preaching that the three disciples, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were up on a mountaintop with Jesus, right? And it was there that Jesus was revealed in all of his glory. And remember, Elijah and Moses showed up, and then God spoke down from heaven. It's this kind of gnarly scene. God spoke down from heaven, and he was like, this is my son, Jesus, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to what he's saying. And the disciples, as they should have, got all freaked out, and they fell on their faces, and they began to worship Jesus. And now they have come down from the mountain, no doubt still reeling from what they experienced up on the mountaintop. And as is often the case in our lives, when they came down from the mountain, they experienced opposition. And in the parallel account of this story in the book of Mark, we read that when they came down the mountain, the the other disciples, the other nine disciples, were already there in this community with this father and with this boy who was being tortured by demons. And here Matthew describes this boy's condition as simply having seizures, right? But in Mark's account, we get a little fuller description of the boy in Mark 9 when he says, And one of the crowd, that is this boy's father, said to Jesus, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. Like many people who are tormented by demons, it appears that this boy is just a victim. And in the purest sense of the word, he is demonized. A demon literally has taken power over him. Peter, who was here this day from firsthand experience, would say later in his letter in 1 Peter 5 8, he would say, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's what the enemy does, right? Jesus, it says in John 10, he comes to give life, but the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And sometimes that, that comes in different forms in our lives. But here, the enemy is literally trying to kill this boy. Matthew says that he's having seizures, which, seizures, which if, if you've ever seen somebody who's demonized manifesting, uh, it's really similar looking to what happens when somebody's having seizures. Um, so maybe it's that, a neurological disorder and a demonic thing happening, or maybe it's just that this kid has a demon. Either way, this kid is suffering, and the dad is desperate. And of course he is. If you've ever had a kid who, who's suffering, man, it, it's, you're desperate to do anything you can to help him. I remember the first time our, our first kid, Selah, who's 13 now, but when she was just like one years old, she was sick, and she, she was throwing up. She was just vomiting in her bed. And I remember just like sitting there next to her crib and just watching her, and then every like hour she'd wake up and throw up, and there was nothing I could do. Like, I was like, what can I do? She couldn't communicate. I was desperate to do something to help her. If you've ever had a kid suffering little like that or big, you know that you would do anything to relieve your kid's suffering. And it doesn't seem like this dad has a whole lot of hope, right? We see in, in Mark's uh, recounting of the, the story that Jesus asks the dad, do you have faith to believe? Do you believe that I can heal your son? And he's like, yeah, Lord, I, I do, but help my unbelief. Like, yeah, kind of like, Lord, I, I know that you can do anything, but Lord, we've tried everything and nothing is working. Like, Lord, I know you can heal children, but I'm just not sure that you're going to heal my child. He appears to be at the end of his rope. In verse 16, it says that he even brought his son to Jesus' disciples, but they could not heal him. And so when he had tried everything and nothing was working, that is when Jesus showed up. And that's often when Jesus shows up, right? In the 11th hour and the disciples are out in the middle of the storm and they're like, dude, we're going to die. We're literally going to die. Then Jesus shows up walking on water. When Lazarus is deathly sick, dying, Jesus still doesn't show up until he's dead. And then Jesus shows up. We're talking about faith today because that's really what this passage is all about. But I don't want us to miss the nuance that God is in the business of doing impossible things with impossible situations. That he doesn't care how uh, high the odds are stacked against him. In fact, he sometimes stacks the odds against himself just to prove that, man, he's God. He's really in control and to glorify his own name. So if you're like this man or like this boy and you're just at the end of your rope, I would, I would just say to you, and I, I need to say, that God really is in the business of doing impossible things with impossible situations. And today, this sermon is for you. So this father, who was in this impossible situation, sees Jesus walking into town, and he brings his son to him, and he says in verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the water under the fire, I'm sorry, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jeremy, can you turn on the exhaust fan, my brother? It's getting a little hot in here, thanks. And Jesus responds in verse 17 by saying, O faithless generation. Jesus' assessment of 
the state of the disciples and the state of the people gathered there around here is faithless generation. Faith. It is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And it is at the heart of this passage here. So then, what is faith? What exactly is faith? And specifically, what is biblical faith? Because the word that we use in the English doesn't really capture the full meaning of the Greek word. The Greek word that is used here for faith is this word pistis, which can be associated with belief, uh, with trust, or with faith. But it's easy for us when we hear the word faith to just think of like a, a type of intellectual assent. Like in my mind, I believe in something that does not, uh, that I cannot see or something that may not be real or whatever. But the Greek word pistis is so much bigger than that. The meaning of that word is so much richer than the meaning of the English word. So let me give us, because this is uh, essential here, let me give us a working biblical definition of what faith is. Biblical faith is belief plus trust that leads to action. And so it starts with belief, yes, an intellectual assent. But it's not just believing in something like an idea or a Christian doctrine. It moves from belief to trust, to trusting an actual person. And then it moves to be willing to act on that trust. And if you lose any one of these three, then it's not really biblical faith. And you know, we all operate on faith to one degree or another, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, our friend Evan Sponseller was getting married to the lovely Kristen Plum. And so he decided that what he wanted to do for his bachelor party was go skydiving. And so... Uh, we all, you know, say, okay, yeah, dude, we'll do this. We'll all go skydiving together. Now, skydiving, plane up in air, big door open, no seat belts, jump out of plane, ground acro- approaching quick, little thin fabric in backpack that's supposed to open, then holds you in air to keep you from hitting ground. <laughs> Skydiving requires faith, especially when you are me, who is not what you would call petite. <laughs> Skydiving requires faith in the biblical sense of the word. And if you've ever been skydiving, you know that this is how it goes. You get to this skydiving warehouse, right, where everything is, and then after you sign your life away, they, they introduce you to all the gear. They tell you how everything's going to go down. And the first thing they do is pair you up with the right partner. And so I'm like the biggest dude there. And so they partner me up with this big old tall bulky dude, which I guess is how you do it in skydiving. But all I'm thinking is like, yo, isn't there a weight limit on this parachute thing? Like, shouldn't they put me with the little guy? But apparently that's what they do. And so they pair me up with this guy. And then they start talking you through the whole process. Okay, we're going to go up. You're going to you know, we're going to line you up in this order and here's how it's going to happen and all that. So right here, if I was going to go forward with this thing, I have to start having a little faith, right? I had to believe in the idea that skydiving was actually safe. I had to believe that the equipment was actually rated for me and this dude to hold us up, right? I had to believe in all of these different things that, that, that 
I was going to strap into this dude and the, the, the thing was going to hold me and all that stuff. But it couldn't stop with belief. I also had to put my trust in somebody. I had to trust somebody. In this case, it was this guy who said he had 20 plus years of experience. I had to trust this guy that he was who he said he was. And I literally had to put my life in his hands. And so I did. But biblical faith doesn't stop right there. And neither does skydiving faith. Because if anyone has ever skydived, skydove, skydived, I don't know. You know that the scariest part isn't when they're talking to you about the gear or strapping on the harness or telling you all these things. It's not even flying up to altitude. And it's, it's not even when they open that big old door and it's like air blowing and you're sitting on the ground of this little plane, right? It's not, it's not even then because you can't really tell how, how high up you are. You're like at 10,000 feet or whatever. You can't tell how high up you are because there's no perspective yet, right? You don't have any perspective. The scariest part is right before it's your turn when your buddy who's going before you scoots over to the edge of the plane with his guy that's strapped to him and in milliseconds falls out of the plane and disappears forever. (laughs) That's the scariest part because you're like, oh, he's just gone. Like just like that, just gone. And you realize like, oh, we're, we're going super fast. And we're really high up right now, right? That's when you realize how terrifying it is. And then it's your turn. And this is where the rubber of faith really meets the road. Will my belief and my trust actually lead to action? Will I actually scoot over to this guy and allow him to buckle me into himself? Will then I actually scoot over with this guy to the edge of the plane? And will I actually jump out of the plane? Real faith doesn't get to this point and say, no, nah, dude, never mind. I believe you, I trust you, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Faith requires acting on your belief and trust. And so in this case, that meant that me jumping out of a plane. And so I did. And it was fun. And I was safe. This dude actually knew what he was doing. He actually was who he said he was. And The parachute actually opened like it was supposed to. And that was actually rated for the weight that it said it was rated for. And when it comes to following Jesus, it's the same thing. It starts with believing. It starts with just believing that Jesus actually is who he says he is. But it doesn't stop with believing. It's personal. It's not just believing. It is putting our trust in Jesus. And entrusting our life to Jesus. Putting our life in his hands. It's like... I believe you are who you said you are. I believe that you will do what you said you will do, that you will be who you say you're going to be. And so therefore, I will trust you. I will put my life in your hands. But it doesn't stop there either. You can't just say, Lord, here's my life, and then sit on the sidelines. The Christian life is not about being a spectator. It is about being a participant. And true biblical faith doesn't stop with a believing mind and a trusting heart. It continues to faith-filled action. Biblical faith has feet. Because when you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you trust his character and entrust your life to him, then you strap into him. You strap into him and you scoot to the edge and you jump with him. And you jump with him. You jump with him. True faith moves us to join in with Christ and his mission of bringing salt and light 
and the good news to everywhere that our sin has brought corruption. True faith looks like us seeing our communities and families and workplaces and saying, wow, Christ loves these people and wants to bring renewal to them, and so I will join in with him in that. Truth faith looks at the almost 3 billion people around the world who have never, ever heard the good news of Jesus and says, wow, Christ loves these people, and he wants them to know that he does. And so I will take up my cross. I will deny myself. I will follow him, and I won't just believe and trust that he loves these people and not do anything about it, but I will step out and act on this belief and trust. Biblical faith has feet. It's the kind of faith that propels you forward in following Jesus. But that's so different than what our culture often means when it's talking about faith, right? Honestly, most of the time, when the culture says, like, do you have faith? They just mean, do you believe in God? Are you a person of faith? Do you believe in God? But in Scripture, when it talks about faith, hardly ever is it talking about the existence of God. Scripture assumes the existence of God, right? The people that were being written to and that time, like nobody was questioning if God existed. That's not what scripture is talking about. When the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about trusting God's character and entrusting your life to him and then acting on that trust. It's not like the disciples stopped believing in Jesus here. That's not what Jesus is addressing. I mean, Jesus is right there, right? They didn't stop believing in him. Obviously, they believed in Jesus. But believing is not complete faith. And according to Jesus, that's not really faith at all. So he says, oh, faithless generation. And he gets a little frustrated, right? Like he gets a little like fiery right here. He's like, how long, how long do I have to be here with you guys? My translation, seriously? For real, you guys? Like really? You've seen me walk on water, you see me just now, like a couple of weeks ago, feed thousands of people with a little fish and a little bread. And now no faith? Like, really? Faith in the biblical sense comes in the context of following Jesus. Not just believing he exists, not just believing that he did something or is something, but in following him. And following Jesus is this uh, constant, ongoing Dependence, not a momentary decision. The disciples have had faith. They have had faith. I think that's why Jesus is so frustrated here. They have walked with him. They have already left everything to follow him. They have had real faith before. I think he's frustrated here because they're not operating out of that faith. Something has changed. Something has like disconnected. Something has shut down in them. See, faith is the conduit to Jesus. Only Jesus has the power to heal this boy right now. And right now they are not experiencing that power. Why? Because they've somehow disconnected themselves from the source. The conduit has been unplugged. This base amp right here. It's an electronic thing, right? It will only do what it was designed to do if it is plugged into the power source. And it will not do what it was designed to do if it is not plugged in to the power source. 
Faith is the conduit to the very power of God. It is the way that we stay connected. It is this ongoing dependence and trust and giving over of ourselves to him and entrusting our lives to him and having this posture of surrender before him. And when we don't live in that place, we become disconnected from him. And when we become disconnected from the very source itself, even though Jesus said we would do greater things than even he did, we won't and can't do what we were created, designed to do. But when this happens, we don't usually see us as like the fault for that, right? Usually what we end up thinking is like something's wrong with God. Like, Lord, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you doing something, God? Why don't you do something, Lord? Lord, why don't you just do what I know you could do, what you did in Scripture? Come on, look at the Bible. God, do what you did in Scripture. And it's like the, the cord is unplugged, just lying there on the ground. We're looking to the power of God to move without actually being connected to the God of that power. See, faith doesn't have power in and of itself. In our culture, you would think differently because we have all these mantras like centered around faith and you, it would make you think that it has something to do with like just the faith. Even in the church, right? It's like, dude, do you have faith for this? Do you, do you believe God for this? And, even, and then outside of the church, right? It's like, man, you just gotta have a little faith, buddy. Just have a little faith, bro. Just believe. As if it was like, uh, the object of our faith was secondary, as long as we have some faith. Or often what we do is put our faith in a certain outcome. That becomes the object of our faith. If I just believe that such and such will happen, then that's faith. I just believe that that thing will happen, then that's faith. And so our, our working definition becomes something like this. Faith is optimism that things will turn out the way we hope they will. It's like wishful thinking, right? And so we try to muster up as much of it as we can. Man, I just got to have faith that that person in my life will be healed. I just got to have faith that that relationship will be fixed. I just got to have faith that so-and-so will finally start following Jesus. We can't put our faith, though, in something it has to be in someone. We don't put our faith in a certain outcome. We put our faith in a certain person, namely Jesus. That's why Hebrews 11, where it's talking about all about faith, right? It says, those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We must come to God and believe that he is. It's about him. Believe that he is God, that he is everything. Having faith that things will go a certain way is not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about faith. And guys, listen, not only is it not what the Bible talks about, but it's just a really dangerous way to live. It's just like, honestly, like really kind of scary to live that way. Because this life will always let you down and outcomes will always be unpredictable and ever-changing. It's just unstable. This life is unstable. But you know who's not unstable? You know what's not unpredictable? You know who is never changing? Somebody take a guess. That's right, Jesus. 
Jesus. Jesus is the only thing in this life that is steadfast and always the same. And so we don't have faith that a certain thing will turn out a certain way. We have faith in a God who has the power to do anything and to make any outcome that he wants. Those who come to God must believe that he is. We believe in him. He is the object of our faith. The Bible also never asks us to have more faith. Jesus isn't talking about us having a greater degree of faith here. In fact, he's not talking about the amount of faith at all. Actually, he's saying the opposite. We'll get to it in a minute. But in verse 20, he'll say, if you have faith like a mustard seed, then you can move mountains. A mustard seed. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? It's the teeny, tiniest thing that he could have thought of to like illustrate what, what he's talking about here. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll be able to move mountains. He's not rebuking them for having too little faith. He's rebuking them for not having real faith, biblical faith at all. He says to them, oh, faithless generation. And so he's not telling them to have more faith. He's telling them to remember who he is. Remember that they can trust him. Remember who he is, that they can give their lives to him. It's not about the quality or quantity of our faith. It is about the object of our faith. And that is why this story is not just about these faithless, fretting people. It is also about this faithful, steadfast Savior. The only one who is worthy of being the object of our faith. The story goes on here after Jesus hears of the disciples not being able to heal this boy. And after he calls out the people for their faithlessness, he turns to the father and he says at the end of verse 17, all right, bring him here to me. And says that Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. And so you've got this like really sad, terrible, kind of messy situation, right? It's, it's full of pain. There's frustration, there's hopelessness, fear, no doubt. And Jesus comes and he steps into the messiness of that. And in an instant, he brings peace to the whole thing. He shows up like a king. And with just a word, like he did when he calmed the sea, like he did when he fed the 5,000, with just a word, he speaks and brings healing and peace to the situation. I mean, this is a gnarly demon, right? In Mark nine eighteen, uh, it tells us that it wasn't the boy who was falling into the water and the fire, but the demon was throwing him into the water and the fire. This thing is nasty. It's trying to destroy him. And Jesus comes in like a boss and just takes authority over the situation. There's not even a fight. There's no struggle here. It is very clear who the alpha is is in the situation. We have this big old huge golden doodle dog at our house, right? And when people come over to visit, like she thinks she's the alpha. And so her name's Rio. And so she's just jumping on people. She's whatever. But when Dom comes in the house, she's like, right? She knows like I'm the alpha in the house. Rio, you don't get to jump on me. I say Rio. She goes, right? She knows who the alpha is. This demon knows who the alpha is. It's like, dude, Jesus is the alpha. There's no fight here. He commands the demon to come out, and the boy is healed instantly. Listen, we should never minimize the work of Satan. 
Spiritual warfare is a real thing. Satan really is out to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus really is stronger. I remember the first time that, yeah, we can clap for that. Drink some water. I remember the first time I ever saw a demonized person. I was on this Thailand's mission trip. I was the youth pastor at Reality Carp, and we took a bunch of kids to Thailand. And we're a couple days into the mission trip, and uh, I get word that there's a girl in a room lying on a bed, and there's something wrong. And so I'm like, all right, we're supposed to be leaving to go somewhere. And so I'm kind of like, whatever, let's go deal with this girl or whatever. She's laying on the bed, and she's tripping out. She can't communicate. She can't talk. I'm talking to her, and she's just like going like this, like Man, she's just tripping. It looks like she's on, like hallucinating or something, on drugs. And so I'm like, all right, I'll start praying for her. So I start praying for her and praying, God, would you heal her, you know? And then as I'm praying, I'm like, man, I think there's something spiritual happening right now. This isn't a physical thing. I think there's something spiritual. And so I start praying, how I know, too. I'm like, God, you have authority. You have authority over the demonic realm. You have authority over Satan. Lord, would you come and just take authority over all spiritual stuff, all demons right here? And as I'm praying, I hear God say to me, Dom. He calls me Dom. Dom, stop talking to me. This girl has a demon. Tell it to come out. And I was like, okay. So I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, right? And so I did. I just, I just tell this thing. I just say, I didn't raise my voice. I didn't come up with some fancy words. I just said, come out. I just told that thing. I said, come out. And you know what happened? It did. Like, she like convulsed a little bit, like tripped out a little bit, and then she sat up. She was in her right mind. The thing went away. I didn't know a single thing. I didn't know a dang thing about anything. All I knew is that Jesus had authority and that me as one of his kids, I also had authority, and he was telling me to come out. And so if I did, I knew it would, and it did. You know, one of the most amazing things about being a touring musician is I get to travel all over the world, right? I've been to a lot of countries, and I get to see a lot of different cultures that are all so much different than ours, and they really are so much different than ours. But the two things that are always the same everywhere I go are the restorative power of Jesus and the destructive work of Satan. I've encountered demons all over the world, and I don't care if they're African demons or Asian demons or Caribbean demons or demons in America or demons in men, demons in women, demons in boys, demons in girls. There are always two things that are the same in every situation. Number one, demons are always out to wreak havoc and do everything in their power to undermine the work of God in people's lives. And number two, they all submit to Jesus. And... And to those whom he has given authority, namely every born-again Christian. That means you. That means you. You have authority that God has given you over demons. Not because you've earned it. Not because you're something special or have done something special or took a course. Just because he is something special and he has done something and he is in you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that's the frustrating part about this here in Matthew 17. Before this situation with this boy ever took place, Jesus in Mark chapter 6 had already given the disciples authority over unclean spirits. He gave them authority when he sent them out. And yet 
here they had become disconnected from the power source. And even though the power was available to them, they didn't walk in it. Listen, you have everything you need to have authority in the spiritual realm, in your life and in the people's lives around you. And as we'll see in a minute, you have everything that you need to even do the, the impossible. But you got to walk in it. you got to walk in it. I, I, I'm a decent singer, right? Like, I can sing. But when I was 16 and earlier, I was tone deaf. I was tone deaf until I was 16. And I met Jesus, and something miraculous happened. He, fixed me neurologically, and all of a sudden I could hear pitch for the first time in my life. He gave me a gift. He gave me a gift of being able to sing. But I still, I still have to choose to walk in that. God has given you callings, giftings, access to power, authority, victory. But you got to walk in it. And the disciples on this day were not walking in it. But here's what's beautiful about this story. In spite of them not walking in faith, Jesus still heals this boy. Just like 2 Timothy says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. In other words, it's who he is. Like your lack of faith can't change who God is. This story here in Matthew 17 is all about faith, yes. But the irony is, if you obsess over your faith, it'll actually weaken. But if you look to Jesus, the faithful one, your faith will swell. So what about you? What's going on in your life? And is there a situation in your life where maybe you're looking to this or looking to that? What are you trusting in, in the midst of your situation? What or whom are you putting your trust and faith in? Like right now, what are you looking to? Are you looking to money? Some of us are looking to money. Some of us are looking to another person. Like, oh, if they just come through, like everything's going to be fine. Or a, a, a circumstance or an opportunity. Some of us are looking to ourselves. Like, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. I, I, I'm, I got it. Some of us are opposite of that. Some of us are like, no, nah, dude, I don't have any faith in anybody or anything. I'm over it. I'm over all of it. Whatever it is, the question is, have you looked to Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? In the biblical sense of the word, believing, entrusting yourself, and then acting on that. Knowing that he wants to enter into your situation, into whatever that thing is that is going on in your life is, and he wants to bring peace there. He is worthy of our trust And more than any of those other things, he can handle better, might I add, whatever you have going on in your life right now. And when we put our faith in him, the faithful one, we will have power to move mountains. After the boy is healed, verse 19 goes on to say, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, We could not cast it out. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Is it hot in here? I'm sweating. Can you please turn on the AC, somebody? This is how how the ladies do it, right? You blot, so you... Don't get your makeup messed up. 
I'm not wearing makeup. I just... Like I said earlier, it's not, it's not the amount of our faith, right? It's not the size of our faith that matters. It is the object of our faith. And when Jesus is the object of our faith, then there is real power. It's the kind of power that Jesus says right here in verse 20, the kind of power that will make nothing impossible. This isn't like lawnmower motor power, right? This is like 747 jet power. It's the kind of power that can overcome sin. It's the kind of power that has authority over demonic things. It's the kind of power to forgive people who have wronged you and release them. It's the kind of power to lay down your life for one another. To obey the call of God in your life, even though it might seem just crazy. It's the power to be faithful, like, in your singleness, single people. It's power to be faithful as a a spouse in your marriage, even a difficult marriage. It's the power to lay down your life and take up your cross for the sake of the gospel. Even be willing. It's the power to even be willing to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says here, it's power to move mountains. Mountains. For those of us who grew up in California, mountains aren't that big of a deal, right? But have you ever sat with someone who is from somewhere else where there's no mountains the first time they come to somewhere where there's mountains. Like when my drummer Jay, who grew up in Gainesville, Florida, first time he came to California, we're driving to Palm Springs for a show. And we're in like the San Bernardino area. I'm just talking a mile a minute, just like blah, 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 blah. And after like 10 minutes, I was like, this dude has not said a word in like 10 minutes. And I look over at him and he's just this. And I was like, what's wrong, dude? What are you looking at? He's like, dude, those mountains are crazy. It's like a little, like 11,000 foot San Gregorio mountains or whatever, right? This dude was in awe, though. He was in awe of these mountains. If you've ever stood at like the the base of K2 or Mount Everest or something like that, you get the like majesty, the majesticness, the epicness in the truest sense of the word of these mountains. You're like, dude, this is gnarly. Like you go in there, you could die in there. It's huge. It's terrifying almost, right? But you know what Psalm 97 says? It says that the mountains melt like wax in the presence of God. What? Here's what that means. It means that when we're talking about the power of God, it makes Mount Everest look like a cute little melting candle on your countertop. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the power of God. God is all-powerful. He is more mighty and capable than we could possibly imagine. Listen to me. And he is for us. See, if you think God is all-powerful, but he's frustrated and disappointed with you, then you're like, okay, I can worship you, God, for being all-powerful, but I can't believe that that power is going to break into my life. But God is not frustrated or disappointed with you. When this father says, Lord, I believe you, but help my unbelief, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He's not like, get out of here, man. you You, like, don't have enough. Get out of here. I'm not going to do this for you. No. Jesus meets his deepest need and his deepest cry and demonstrates his power in this man's life. God delights in you, and you should expect his power to break into your life. His very purpose is to see the kingdom of heaven break into earth through our lives. It was pretty typical in the first century to use mountains as like a picture of obstacles in our lives. And Jesus is saying, through faith in me, you have power to move these obstacles, to move mountains. 
And so I'll end with this. What's standing in the way then today? What's standing in the way of where you're supposed to go? What you're supposed to be doing? What's standing in the way of what God is calling you to? What's standing in the way of peace and healing? Entering into whatever your situation is. Those are the types of mountains that God specializes in moving. This story started with an impossible situation. And Jesus met it in the same way that he will meet your situation. With power and authority to do anything and everything that needs to be done. So we're going to put these couple of questions up on the screen here. I think this is helpful for us. Please take a picture of this or write it down. Question number one, is there a situation or circumstance in your life right now that's preoccupying you? If so, what is it? Number two, in whom or what are you putting your faith in to remedy that situation or circumstance? And I'll just say this, if it's not Jesus... I'm not here to condemn you, and God's not here to condemn you, but he is here to lovingly, like, discipline you and bring you to himself. And I would ask you during the second set of worship, if, if it's not Jesus, if the answer to that second question is not Jesus, then just turn. Just, like, turn to him. That's what repent means. It means just turn in the right direction. It was a nautical term. Repent is a nautical term. It means you're headed for, like, a, an iceberg. They get on the radio, they say, repent. Repent. It means turn, turn around, turn the wrong, the, the, to the right direction. Just repent back, turn back to Jesus today and say, Lord, I want to put my trust in you. You are the one who's worthy of being the object of my faith. Amen? Amen. Lord, you are indeed the steadfast Savior. You really are the faithful one. And there's so much that we could look to, Lord. But all of it's fleeting. All of it's just a shadow of the one. So, Lord, we want to turn our eyes back to you today. We want to turn our eyes to you and trust you, put our faith in you. We want to believe on you, Lord. We want to act on that belief. We want our faith to have feet. So, Lord, we ask that you would convict us by your Holy Spirit where we need to be convicted to, to turn back to you, to repent. I ask that you give us the grace to do so. Even just the grace, Lord, to just take that one little step of acknowledging, all right, yeah, my, my faith isn't really in Jesus. And you say, come to me. Come, come, son. Come, daughter. Put your faith in me. That's what I am. I'm the faithful one. I would encourage you to that's you to take a posture of surrender before God this morning. I personally, uh, I, I like to do that in a physical way because it helps my heart. So I, I like to just get on my face, like literally lay down with my face in the carpet and my hands, my palms pointed up to the air because it puts me in a place of like unable to do anything really. But maybe for you it's just Maybe it's getting on your knees where you're sitting or maybe you're not physically able to do that. In which case, just bring your heart in a place of surrender to God. Communion is here to remind us this morning that Jesus is the faithful one. 
And he took it all the way to the cross. He is the faithful one, and so he can indeed be trusted. The prayer team will be on the right and the left of the stage. They would love to pray for you in any way. You need help.